On this week's What a Week, we discuss Joni Ernst's No Good, Terrible, Very Bad Week with Emily Holly of Iowa Voices. We discuss how Iowans are responding to the recent wave of mass shootings across the country with Amber Gustafson. We're recording live from the Iowa Federation of Labor AFL-CIO State Convention. This is What a Week. Welcome to What a Week. I'm Lauren McElmeal, the Digital Director for Progress Iowa. And I'm Matt Sinovic, the Executive Director of Progress Iowa. We're joined now by Emily Holly from the organization Iowa Voices to talk about Joni Ernst's No Good, Very Bad Week. Thanks so much, Lauren. I'm happy to be here today. Uh, Joni Ernst had a pretty bad week. Um, somewhat at our expense. We're pretty excited about it. Um, she has been traveling around the state holding town halls, which is wonderful. We obviously encourage that all elected officials should speak to their constituents, and we're glad that she is using um, the recess to reach out to Iowans. Um, one of the things that we've been wanting to do is have her address pre-existing conditions and the rising costs of prescription drugs at her town halls. And so we've had folks asking her about it and really getting uh, some answers from her to try and hold her accountable for her votes. Um, she's been traveling around the state talking about how she cares about people with pre-existing conditions and she would never want to take away their health care. And yet she voted four times to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which is the only legislation that has ever existed to protect people with pre-existing conditions, people like myself people like my daughter, people like 1.3 million Iowans with pre-existing conditions. And so we've been addressing that. And then uh, another thing that we've done is she held a town hall in Polk County in Johnston at 730 in the morning. And when you hold a town hall at 730 in the morning, the only reason you do that is because you hope that folks aren't going to show up. But uh, we got together with quite a few of our partners, including Progress Iowa, and we got folks there to ask her tough questions. And we had a mobile billboard placed outside the event with a photo of her saying, um, tell Joniers to stop gutting our health care with her D.C. office number. So hopefully folks gave her a call and said, hey, please stop gutting our health care. And please listen to Iowans and actually support us. And uh, we had some folks talking about pre-existing conditions and the rising cost of um, prescription drugs at that town hall. And then following the town hall, uh, the mobile billboard actually followed her to the Iowa State Fair and then drove around the fairgrounds for quite a few hours that Saturday. Would you say that any of her answers at the town hall were satisfactory about protecting pre-existing conditions? So something that has been kind of her default answer is she's been going back to she, – she says a couple of different things. One of the things that she says is that there are a lot of plans that exist. She said there are a lot of – you know, a lot of her colleagues – she and a lot of her colleagues have plans that exist to protect people with pre-existing conditions if the Affordable Care Act should um, be repealed. However – there, there isn't anything actually in place. So people with pre-existing conditions, if the Affordable Care Act were to disappear tomorrow, people with pre-existing conditions would have to wait for uh, however long for Congress to get it together and pass legislation in both houses and have the president sign it to make it law. So we don't know how long that could take. And uh, she has no idea how long that could take. So she says that there are plans, but there's nothing actually in place. So it's a weak answer. The other, um, the other answer that she's given is she talks about what they used to do in Maine, where people with pre-existing conditions, um, healthcare issues, would enroll in a high-risk pool in Maine, and um, that's how they were protected. 
And the thing is, it's not a bad idea, but it didn't work because it was never fully funded. So I guess my follow-up to that is, Senator Ernst, are you willing to commit to fully funding it? Because she did just give tax cuts to billionaires and billion-dollar corporations. So, And she's talked about cutting entitlements like Medicaid, Medicare. And um, so is that something that she would be supporting? Is she going to fully fund it? Because if she's not going to fully fund it, it's not going to work. Something that was really uh, powerful at this town hall at, like you said, 730 in the morning on a Saturday was the, I mean, it felt like the people who were there to hold Ernst accountable, who were kind of frustrated with her record, outnumbered her supporters. And we are, you know, a year and and four months or whatever it is away from the election next November when she would be on the ballot and people are already fired up. I mean, are you getting that sense? And what do you think, you know, is driving people to 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 come out and participate like that other than your obviously your great work? But um, but I mean, but I mean, I. We're, we're seeing this kind of happening online and happening in person now where people are showing up and asking questions. I know you were – like you said, you were recruiting people at not just in the Des Moines area but all over the state to go out and ask her tough questions and they were doing it. So what do you think is going on? I think people are concerned. I think people are hurting across the state and I think people are concerned. And I think what's great is that we are certainly in a media blitz right now. You know, um, the president is tweeting constantly. There's always news stories about various things. We exist in a 24-hour news cycle and so things are often happening but then they go away because something new happens. And uh, I think what's encouraging is that Iowans are realizing across the state that her policies aren't helping them and their families and that they really need to speak up in order to get her to change her position. Um, one of the things that we would love is we would love for her to say, I completely support people with pre-existing conditions and I have a plan in place and we're going to bring it to the Senate floor for a vote to protect people. What would you bet on that happening? I would not bet on that happening <laughs> yeah, at all. I would lose all of my money. Yeah. Added to that, that the House would also she would have to work across the aisle with Democrats and in the House and the it, the chances get lower and lower. You know, I think that I, I mean, like I said, I applaud her talking to Iowans and, and taking their questions, but the questions were pre-screened by her staff. Um, and she was heckled quite a bit at her at this town hall because she wasn't she was kind of skirting around a lot of issues with her answers. And so I think that what's really important is if you want answers from your elected officials, you have to hold their feet to the fire. You have to share. I, I found that what's most successful is people sharing their personal stories and then asking the question, saying, you know, this is my life. This is my story. And I want to know why you voted this way and what you're going to do to fix it. You had your billboard driving around the Iowa State Fair. I, we don't know as far right if Joni Ernst saw the billboard, right? Um, but if she did, what do you think her reaction would have been? I don't imagine it was a particularly positive <laughs> reaction um, because we're holding her accountable for several votes that she took. You know, the thing is, I think with pre-existing conditions and and with her votes, is that it wasn't just one vote. It was multiple times. It was four votes. And each time – and she also said in the town hall that when she voted against the Affordable Care Act, she was voting to replace it. Well, majority of times that she voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, there was nothing that they were voting on to replace it with. They were just saying like, well, we're going to repeal it, but we'll replace it later. That was their actual statements when this happened. 
multiple times. And so it's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to believe that she really is concerned about people with preexisting conditions and yet would vote that way. Yeah. Um, that's definitely her record. And, and we're just glad that there are people like you and groups like yours who are out there helping to hold, hold her accountable. So, um, keep up the good work and, and we'll continue to do what we can to, to support that effort. We're excited to be joined now by Amber Gustafson, who is a volunteer leader with Moms Demand Action, a graduate student at Drake University, and ran for the state Senate in 2018. Amber, thank you so much for being on What a Week. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We have talked on this uh, in past episodes about the recent mass shootings, and but I know that there's been a lot of work being done in Iowa in response to that, and 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 it's it's always the bittersweet, awful part of these tragedies, but they, they actually can spur action. And, and there's, there has been a great, uh, a good response. And so just want to talk about what you're seeing, the recess rallies this past week, um, and just anything else that, uh, that, that you've seen as people have started to respond here on the ground. Sure. So, um, of course, you know, Two weeks ago, we had our forum in uh, in Des Moines where we hosted 16 presidential candidates that came and spoke about their plans for gun safety. And then, you know, just a, a week later, we put together these recess rallies, and there were um, there were over a hundred of them across the United States, one in every state. Um, in the U.S. And so we had one in Iowa City, and it was, uh, we had about 300 people or so that showed up. Um, so it was really well attended. Yeah, especially considering that it was, you know, a solid 90 degrees and about 100% humidity. <laughs> it was pretty warm out there. But, um, you know, people were really uh, enthusiastic to be there and really supportive. And so we had a, a variety of speakers from kind of all across the um, spectrum in terms of, um, ways in which their, their, their communities are impacted by gun violence. We had, um, a woman who uh, sits on the city council for, I think it's North Liberty, Iowa. Um, also, and she's African-American. We had, um, Mauricio, um, who's an organizer, democratic organizer up in the, um, first congressional district. He, um, spoke on behalf of the Latino community. Um, we had, um, some people know Tucker, um, disability rights activist, I can't think of his last name right now, Cassidy, Tucker Cassidy, um, his mom came and spoke. Um, and I did not realize, a lot of people might know him, he was in Fred Hubble's commercial um, talking about Medicaid, um, but I did not realize that his disability stemmed from having been shot in an unintentional um, shooting circumstance. I didn't know that either. Yeah. That's, yeah. So his mom came and spoke um, on his behalf because he was not able to be there that day. And then I was there to speak from the perspective of a gun owner, somebody from a rural community. Um, and, you know, the thing that I really focused on was suicide. And, um, and you know, these mass shootings grip the headlines. I mean, they're just absolutely terrifying, the thought of going to Walmart or going to a movie theater or a school or someplace like that and having something like this happen is so frightening, but it's so exceedingly rare. I mean, really, honestly, it, it feels like it's right around the corner for every one of us, but really you have a better chance of being struck by lightning. However, um, you know, obviously mass shootings deserve a tremendous amount of our attention, but, you know, a hundred people are shot and killed in this country every day. And the majority of them are not in mass shootings. As a matter of fact, the majority of them are suicides. Two thirds of all gun deaths are suicides. Um, 
87% of all suicides are carried out by men. 86% of all suicides are carried out by white men or by white people. So white men over the age of 40 are the most likely victims of gun violence. And that's something that we don't talk about a lot because we have a picture of gun violence in our country. First, we think of mass shootings, and then we think of city violence. And those are two really, really crucial parts of the gun violence problem in this country. But suicide takes the majority of lives, and it's happening within a community that historically has been really hard to reach with this message of gun safety. And so that's something that I'm really passionate about because, well, I'm married to a white man over the age of 40. I have a white man. Well, he's not a man. He likes to think he's a man, but (laughs) he's 15 um, that lives in my home. Um, You know, I have an older brother. Um, You know, I have a lot of, you know, everybody, every male in my family owns a gun. And so, you know, thinking about keeping them safe and um, intervening should there be a crisis is really, really important to me. And so um, that's what I plan to do with my work with moms, um, kind of rejoining the chapter now after having run for office, um, stepping into that role of gun, gun owner outreach and, um, and working within the gun owning community to talk about, especially things like suicide. That's great. I mean, I think it's, it's especially important because you see, and President Trump has done this, unfortunately, a lot where that you where there's like a there's a scapegoating of mental illness mm-hmm. when these mass shootings occur mm-hmm. and that's even i think that that's obviously horrible and problematic mm-hmm. but i think it's also problematic because there is a real need to discuss mental health right. when it comes to gun violence and gun safety because because of that right. level of of uh of, of people uh committing suicide with right. and, and and that um so how do you is it just a matter of educating people about the numbers is it how do you get that across and how do you make that how do you how do you kind of break through and because you're right the 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 mass shootings do um uh they do capture the headlines and and the suicide unfortunately doesn't i mean it it just doesn't it doesn't right right you know it's it is a tough battle on the issue of mental health because you're absolutely right there but there is a mental health component particularly to the to the um, suicide aspect of things however um, the data shows us that even a prior diagnosis of a mental health problem is less of a predictor of someone carrying out a suicide to fatality than owning a gun. So what that tells us is that people are not being diagnosed, but having easy access to guns makes it more possible. It's about 10 minutes on average from initial ideation to carrying out a completed suicide. So um, there has to be steps to be taken in that intervening time. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, and I go back to I say this over and over and over again. I don't care where you live. I don't care if you live in Orient, Iowa, where I grew up, or if you live in the inner city, the urban core of Detroit. It's still easier to get a gun in this country than it is to get mental health care. And that's wrong. And we need to have a really, really serious discussion about that. Not the discussion that says, oh, we have to lock people people with mental illness up, which is what Donald Trump has just now said on two separate occasions, that's not the right conversation. The conversation needs to be, how can we destigmatize mental health, particularly among men, so that they can pursue treatment without stigma, without shame, and um, and that we can intervene, you know, whether it's to... Um, you know, create some kind of a stopgap in between the time that a, a person 
desires to purchase a weapon and actually obtains it, um, you know, like a waiting period or something like that. But those types of things can be really, really helpful and really important in breaking that um, progression. Definitely. I mean, I I also want to talk about um, your and 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 hear what you're doing uh, to organize gun owners because I think that's that's obviously an important piece of this. Um, you you see sometimes uh, polls done of NRA members who overwhelmingly support background checks or sort sort of the common sense policies that are blocked in Congress for whatever reason. Um, uh, but so, so how, how is that outreach going? What are you doing and, and, and how can people help? Yeah. So, you know, just trying to get started right now at this point, And so kind of trying a lot of different things. If I know anything about organizing and reaching into underserved groups is we'll probably make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> we'll probably do a lot of things wrong. Um, but I think the, I think the, the first step, and we've been having a lot of these conversations within, I have, I belong to a group of moms demand action members that are gun owners, um, on Facebook. So they're all across the United States. And then I also am working within my local chapter to have these conversations. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about is that this needs to be a man-to-man conversation. Um, you know, nobody likes the nagging woman, you know, shaking her finger and saying, you know, you can't have fun anymore. <laughs> you know, we don't want to be Leslie Nopes. We don't want to be Lisa Simpsons, you know, the, the, the cosmic killjoy or whatever. Um, and so the, so a part of that is inviting more men to be part of the conversation, to be part of what it is that we're doing. And, you know, I have had fantastic reception um, when I've gone and and talked with folks that are interested in being part of this, um, you know, with guys and that sort of thing, because I think they know that if they're making a difference within their own demographic group, that it's huge, has a huge impact. Um, so that's one thing is inviting more men and more male gun owners to be part of the process. The other thing is, is showing up where they're at. Um, you know, it's really easy for us to go to the Drake Farmer's Market and that's not to say that men and gun owners don't go to the Drake Farmers Market, but like that's a real that's a real low hanging fruit for us, you know, right? Um, or you know, some of these some you know yeah. d- where there's just a lot of progressive people, and we're kind of preaching to the choir. So we're looking for ways that we can get outside of our comfort zone, and it's not just about reaching out to gun owners. It's also where, where how can we reach the African American community? How can we reach the disability community? How can we reach um, Native and Indigenous folks? How can we you know there's all kinds of different constituent groups that need to hear this message. And so, um, again, going to where they are. So we're looking at some different um, expos and conferences and that sort of thing where we can go and, um, and, and show up and, and say, hey, you know, we're, we're gun owners. I'm a gun owner. Um, you know, my son's on the trap shooting team, that sort of thing. And so we're like you. We're, we're not different than you. And we actually agree on this issue. Come and help. And... Um, Part of the conversation, too, that I think is really important, I've talked about this a lot with the folks in my gun owners group from across the country, is there's this really beautiful, strong desire to protect that leads people to purchase guns. And that's this desire to protect their family, to protect themselves, that sort of thing. And I know there are people that probably don't understand that because they're like, hey, I feel fine, I feel safe in the world, and I can call the cops and all of that sort of thing. But when you live, you know, like I did, I grew up four miles east, a mile north, and a mile east of Orient, Iowa, the cops were a long ways away. And so, yeah, you want to be able to protect yourself. That's okay. That's okay to want to protect yourself. Part of the conversation of protecting yourself and protecting your family is gun safety and talking about mental health. Those things all have to go hand in hand. 
moving from changing this culture to more policy solutions, the governor, Kim Reynolds, recently said that um, they're going to take a holistic, her word, approach to policy solutions, which in a legislature that has, for the past two years, done nothing but, well, loosen safety measures that Iowa had put in place. And I think I'd like to hear your thoughts on how uh, how that holistic approach maybe should go. Yeah, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Kim Reynolds or if it's um, Joni Ernst, um, you know, it just they're completely and utterly out of touch with the sentiment, the, the popular sentiment in, the, in Iowa, frankly, um, you know, to, to talk about um, wanting to, um, you know, it, it's not about the gun and, you know, on all of those sorts of things. I mean, people are so tired of those sidestepping arguments. And, um, and, and I, you know, <laughs> a new study, I think it was Fox News or some Republican pollster just came out and said that gun safety is the number one issue on the minds of suburban voters, suburban women voters. Well, guess what? Suburban women voters are probably going to decide the 2020 election. You know, last time they went with Trump, um, you know, if they continue to see people like Kim Reynolds and Joni Ernst and, and Trump waffle on this issue, I, I, you know, when you, I'm a suburban mom, don't come for my kids. Do not come for my kids. I will, I will remove you from office if you are in any way a risk to my kids. And if you're not willing to stand up and hold the gun industry accountable and actually either pass laws or protect the laws that we have on the books, you're not going to keep your job. And so, um, you know, both she and Ernst kind of said the same canard of, well, you know, we need to enforce the laws that we have on the books. I find that very humorous. And I'll tell you why. Because Reynolds and Ernst have done nothing but try to repeal the laws that we have on the books. Um, the Iowa legislature has voted at least three times to completely eliminate the permitting handgun system here in Iowa, um, including my past opponent, Whitver. I voted for it at least twice, maybe three times, which would basically do away with um, background checks on private handgun purchases in the state. And all you have to do is look at Missouri to see what happens when you do away with the permitting process for handguns. Their um, homicide, gun homicide death has skyrocketed. Um, and they have gone backwards in terms of, you know, they're one of the few states where gun violence is actually increasing. So, um, yeah, so I, I just, I, I kind of laugh in a really sad and cynical way, I guess, when I hear Reynolds and, and Ernst say things like that, because, I mean, they might as well be talking about um, bloodletting as a cure for a fever. It's that out of date. I think also... With the fact that they continue to talk about mental health and scapegoat, Iowa is the last I heard the 36th in in the con, the U.S. for mental health uh, preparedness and mental health uh, status because of a lot of things that Kim Reynolds' predecessor did. And as much as she really loves to talk a big game about fixing mental health, and she has taken some small steps to make the pro to ameliorate the problem. But I think that if we're going to, if you're going to continue to say mental health is the problem, there needs to be some money and policy about it. Otherwise this is just empty talk. And if they're, if they really wanted like go forward with that, I'd rather that they actually did something than just continue to say it. Yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately we have to look at what's actually going to bring the gun death rate down. 
you know? And so it, if we opened a hundred mental hospital, mental health hospitals in Iowa tomorrow, and we hired a thousand new doctors and a thousand new nurses, guess what? It's not going to have any effect on our gun violence rate. I'm sorry to say that, but it's not. It's a wonderful thing, and by God, we should do it, but it's not going to change the, the number of people that die to, due to guns in this country because mental health is no predictor of gun violence. It's just not. The greatest predictor of gun violence in this country is access to a gun. And so we need to make sure that guns are not falling into the hands of people that shouldn't have them and just, you know, secure guns all around um, rather than, you know, thinking that we can... Um, you know, open the doors of mental hospitals and fix this. It's not, it's not going to happen. And if we continue to stigmatize mental health, like you have people like Donald Trump talking about um, people with mental illness being quote unquote monsters, again, you can open up a hundred mental hospitals, but as long as the leader of our country considers people with mental health issues to be monsters, people are not going to seek treatment. And you can't drag people kicking and screaming into a hospital for treatment. So, um, we have to do something in the meantime, you know? I mean, that's, that's one of the big things that I talk about a lot is people like, you know, people will say, well, we need heart change and we need mental health care and we need to rebuild the family and we need, you know, all of these kinds of things. And all of those things are wonderful and all of those are great objectives. But even if we knew how to do those things, we would have already done them. But if we knew how to do those things, I can guarantee you they would take a long time. And what do we do in the meantime? How many people, how many lives are we willing to lose between the time of now and when everybody in America has their heart right? Uh, shifting a little bit, uh, you mentioned suicides before, um, but Joni Ernst has worked on, has said she's been working on the Violence Against Women Act, and she has been hesitant, at, or, aka stonewalling, any inclusion of gun legislation in that. And Iowa, as a particular example, 40-some percent of gun homicides that take place as a result of domestic violence situations uh, are committed with long guns, which are one of the least regulated parts of our uh, gun, I don't want to say like arsenal, but <laughs> of of our gun legislation. Um, are you, is that something that Moms Demand Action is taking on uh, with domestic violence issues and how often those sort of things, how easy access to a gun and unlocked guns, gun safety leads to fatalities among people in domestic violence situations? Yeah. So we know that the presence of a firearm um, leads to a five-fold increase in the likelihood that a woman will be killed in a domestic violence situation. So, um, I mean, that's, that's a frightening statistic. I... So after my dad passed away, my mom remarried to a man who was an alcoholic who abused her, and he had a lot of guns. He threatened her with guns. It's terrifying. And, um, you know, so I'm personally acquainted with that. Thankfully, she was able to get away. She's safe now, um, all of that sort of thing. But um, moms does care a lot about this issue. So they did a lot of work um, prior to the El Paso shooting. They did a lot of work when um, – the Senate was still in session on getting senators to agree to um, sign on to VAWA and include gun language. Um, we did several actions here in the state to um, message Ernst um, and ask her to to put that in there. Um, so we've definitely done a lot on that front. But also, you know, a fam familial violence is also a huge predictor of 
public violence, um, particularly mass shootings. And we just have in this country Swiss cheese laws when it comes to the issue of gun violence. And it's, um, or excuse me, the issue of, of, well, gun violence too, but also domestic violence. And so um, if we were able to take more seriously gun violence or uh, domestic violence incidents and um, be more uh, restrictive with what people who are committed convicted of domestic violence and stalking are allowed to do when it comes to the issue of guns, we would save a lot of lives in this country. And I'm not just merely talking about partner violence. I'm talking about widespread, even mass shooting violence. We want to make sure and ask about, you have a, a, a really interesting new project called All Views My Own. Mm-hmm. Um, so just want you to talk a little bit about that and, and, and hear about what you've, what you've got going on. Yeah. So when I ran for um, Senate in 2018, um, we spent a lot of money on my digital, (laughs) um, more so than we did on any other Senate candidate, um, partially because I had kind of already built um, a a significant social media following. And so we, you know, and of course, Ankeny folks are really like we're all on our phones and we're, you know, so that's everyone. I I don't think it's just Ankeny. No, for sure. For sure. But um, so they so anyways, when the race was all over, I was left with this incredibly huge microphone. And I thought, what am I going to do? Am I just going to let this founder or am I going to use this for good and use this to, you know, just because the race is over doesn't mean I stopped caring about the issues that I ran on. And so I thought, how can I continue to use this microphone to talk about the things that are really important to me and the things that I talked about in my race? And so couple of different things. One is I have an email and it that goes out kind of weekly, sort of. Sometimes it's more often than that. Sometimes it's less often than that. It just kind of depends on how much content it is, there is. But um, you can uh, you can go to my Facebook page or my Twitter. It's a pinned tweet at the top of my Twitter if you want to sign up to be on my email list. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just all kinds of stuff. It's I talk about people who are running for office that I love and support um, and give people opportunities to donate to them. Um, I talk about events that are coming up or important news stories or little things. And, you know, every time I send it out, I get an email back from somebody that says, this was really good content. Thank you for this, um, which always makes me feel good. And then um, sometimes every two weeks or so, depending upon when I feel like it, um, I do live casts as well on my Facebook page. And so um, just little live videos are supposed to be about 30 minutes long, but sometimes they go like an hour. It just depends on who the person is and how much they have to say and what we have to talk about. But um and just kind of talk about change makers and people that are doing really interesting stuff. I try to um, particularly lift up um, non-traditional voices that aren't always heard um, in the media landscape. And so I really try to seek those out, people that are really doing good in their communities, um, people that have something interesting to say. So, yeah. So if people have ideas for topics of people that you'd like to see on All Views My Own or on Tea Time, that would be great. You can send them to me through Facebook or through um, Twitter or whatever. So, and I'm on Twitter, Facebook, um, and Instagram. So people, I had, a, I worked at the IDP booth last Friday okay. at the state fair. And I had a lot of people that came up and they were like, Oh, Amber, I follow you on Instagram. And I was, I felt like Kim Kardashian or something. <laughs> it was kind of fun. So. That's great. Yeah. Um, well, I get the emails. They're great. We will include, uh, encourage everyone to sign up and on the, uh, um, at potluck.fm, the link for this uh, on the site for the link for this podcast, we'll make sure and put links to your social media and the link for people to sign up for your, for your email. So I appreciate that. And just want to thank you again for, for joining us and for all that you continue to do. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here.
What a Week is produced by Progress Iowa as part of the Potluck Media Network and would not be possible without grassroots supporters like you. For more information, visit potluck.fm and find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. See you next week on What a Week.